Before we get started, I'd like to thank Wisconsin Cheese for supporting this season. Hello, I'm Alex Redgrave, Executive Editor at Sever. Welcome to our new podcast, Place Settings. This season, we're traveling across the U.S. to meet the chefs, farmers, makers, and creatives who are transforming the food space through their unique connection to a place, from the high desert of New Mexico to the buzzy streets of Brooklyn. Each week, our editors will chat with a food innovator whose personal journey is as compelling as what they're putting on the plate. Let's dig in. You could say today's guest, Johnny Ortiz Concha, is a bit of a mystic. His journey to finding himself as a chef doesn't follow the typical career path, which has led him from the mountains of northern New Mexico to the kitchens of some of the country's most prestigious restaurants. His first job was at Alinea in Chicago when he was only 19. At 23, while working at Cezanne in San Francisco, he was named an Eater Young Gun. But right when his star was rising, Ortiz Concha left it all behind to return to the area surrounding the Taos Pueblo, where he grew up, and to follow his vision for a very personal project. Shed is an intimate dinner series that's a direct expression of the wild 22-acre farm Ortiz Concha now calls home. In the last few years, he's been nominated for a James Beard Award and was a chef-in-residence at Stone Barns. Still, Ortiz Concha has kept his hands in every part of the Shed process. He forages for ingredients, tends to the livestock, and digs for the clay that he then hand shapes into ceramic dinnerware. But as you'll hear, Shed is about more than serving a hyperlocal meal. For Ortiz Concha, it's a larger investigation into connecting how we live, what we eat, and where we're from. I got to speak to Ortiz Concha on a recent morning from his adobe, just north of Taos. And seeing a sliver of his world, revealed to me how fruitful forging your own way can really be. That bottom step's wonky. <laughs> My name is Johnny Santiago Adeo Ortiz Concha, and I was born and raised in northern New Mexico, often on the Taos Pueblo. Kai, Kai, come here. She like sleeps under the truck all the time. Kai, come here. <clears throat> okay, guys, we're going to go for a walk. The elk come from the mountains and sneak into the pastures and eat the grass and, like, lay in the grass. So, like, all those little piles there are the elk laying down at night. So we just built this chicken coop for our chickens and it's kind of small, but we're, we're putting up a fence for a run so they'll be able to be out here. Um, we're gonna plant the orchard near and in their run so that all the fruit that falls down, they can kind of peck at and help decompose. So this is our garden. Those little ones over there, that little bushy thing, that's the beans. 
behind the corn on the other side with the yellow blossom, that's the squash. So I'm still figuring out the balance and I think this is our best iteration yet. The village here used to be a pretty big agricultural place. Everyone used to have their own like gardens where they would grow their corn, their beans, their wheat. But you talk to some of the old timers now and they're like, oh, you can't grow a garden here. It's too high, it's too cold. And so I think having a garden here, especially with these older plants, it's really cool to see how they're perceived by others in the area who maybe haven't seen that since their parents did it or their grandparents did it and kind of like lighting that spark, you know. It feels amazing to be part of that process. Living on the Taos Pueblo and on the surrounding land has had such a huge influence on you. What was it like growing up there? I had pretty amazing parents who were like uh, 16 and 18 when they had me, so they were really young, but I had a pretty good um, upbringing. We grew up in my grandfather's house, which was a like one bedroom adobe house that he had built. Um, it had a mud roof, um, so when it rained really hard, the ceiling would leak and we'd put buckets underneath and there was a wood stove for heat in the winter. And we as a family kind of all slept in one bed. Um, so it was a pretty small, intimate place. He had a really beautiful orchard out back. We'd play in that and there would be an abundance of things growing around that. There was wild plums and choke cherries uh, the pear tree at the village for thousands of years, people have been putting their ash on this one pile. And so we'd just go in there and we'd dig it up and we'd find like pot shards and arrowheads and fun stuff. Um, so it was a really wild experience. That's not a reality for most people and super grateful to have that. When did you realize that all those wild plants growing around you could be food? So my initial spark for the love of foraging and food in general was that moment where my mother showed me that my grandfather used to eat the rose petals. And looking back on it, I realized I didn't actually know what food was. As a kid, you eat like grilled cheese sandwiches and frosted mini flakes or whatever it may be. But um, I didn't quite really comprehend that wild things could be food. I was a really picky eater and I really didn't eat a whole lot. I was a vegetarian. Um, and so this moment of eating these wild rose petals kind of just blew my mind. And um, I remember showing all the other kids at school when we'd walk home from the Pueblo to go get our candy in the village or something. I would stop and I'd make them eat these rose petals and everyone thought it was crazy. But um, here I am now, I guess, still eating rose petals. As a teen, you started getting into cooking more. You studied culinary arts in high school. How did you make that huge leap from the Pueblo to your first real job, which was working at Alinea in Chicago. And at the time, it had just earned its third Michelin star. It was a huge deal. My mother's side owns a diner in Taos. And so I kind of grew up in that space a little bit. I started working there when I was like 14 or 15, uh, busting tables. And I still didn't know that I like really loved food, but I knew that it was something that I did enjoy. And so I took culinary arts class all four years of high school and we didn't really do a whole lot looking back on it, like cut a lot of potatoes and julienne carrots or something. But um, it's kind of one of those things where I just kept making the right steps towards appreciating food more. And I had no idea when I moved to Chicago what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. I made a list of all the restaurants in town and figured out which ones I would want to work at and sent emails to everyone. 
Um, and funny enough, Alinea got back to me within a few hours and was like, how does Monday at 6 a.m. sound? And so I went in for a, a two-day trial. And I remember the chef had asked me when I first met him, he was like, are you here for a job or for an intern or what? And I was like, I, honestly, I just want to be here. I don't know. And so I think a little bit of that naiveness of just wanting to be there and wanting to work hard um, worked in my favor. I was definitely eager to like learn as much as I could. Work started at like 10 a.m. and we'd get out sometimes at like 2 a.m. And then I would stage at a butcher shop two days a week for a few hours. So I actually like didn't do anything in Chicago other than work and eat. By the time that I left, I was the only employee in the kitchen that was there when I started. So like a year and a half and I saw probably 30, 40, 50 uh, employees come and go. I learned so much while being at Alinea, the concept of using food to do something new and to be able to be part of a team that is full of drive was really, really powerful. And so from there you headed to Willow's Inn off the Washington coast, which is pretty much the opposite of Alinea. And then a few years after that, you landed at Cezanne in San Francisco and became sous chef. Was there an end goal for you or were each of these decisions just following your instinct and going with the flow? Yeah, I moved to uh, Lummi Island and worked at the Willows Inn. When I went there and started on the team, it was only like four or five of us. And every night, one of the cooks would do dishes. So I would do dishes on Wednesday or something. And it was cool to be part of this team that was, you know, Alinea was like 30 cooks at least, and not to mention like the front of the house and the morning team and all this stuff to a team that was only five people large and where we did the dishes and I went forged berries and um, gathered seaweed and it felt like it was rounding out my experience. And so I went to the Willows Inn and did that whole thing. At the end of it, I realized I wanted to be in a city again, kind of wanted more of that intensity. Alinea was good at teaching me like the, the drive and intention and the Willows was good about teaching me about cooking and food. And so I wanted to like bring those two together. So when I decided to move to San Francisco, I did that before I had a job at Cezanne or anything. But I sent an email to them and was like, hey, I'd love to work with you guys. And right away, I got an email back and said, we just finished our physical space. We're about to start hiring again. How about Monday at 10 a.m.? This was, I think, like Saturday or Sunday. And so I like packed up all my stuff and drove out, got there like right before the meeting. And it was kind of like a dream come true. But it, it was a little bit of the both, following the intention, but also going with the flow. And each time you moved on from working at these restaurants, you didn't keep any of your recipe notebooks on purpose. Um, you know, but those are usually the holy grail for young chefs. Why was it important for you to not hold on to those notes? I never really thought too hard about it, um, but destroying all of the recipes or content that I've gathered in these places over time was important to me for some reason. And looking back on it, I do realize that I'm someone who doesn't like to follow others. I like to figure things out for myself and kind of have my own voice and my own um, system. And I knew if I kept all these recipes or these things that I would probably gravitate to them more than I would like. And so I think in retrospect, the intention was to kind of ingrain the knowledge behind the recipes, like the thought process and the intention in the cooking and kind of be able to bring that back to 
northern New Mexico and apply this sort of broad range of tools that I've gathered and use them with the food here, which, you know, is completely different than it is in San Francisco or in Washington or in Chicago. So it's nice to be able to start with a clean slate. The way you're describing it, your journey leading up to starting Shed sounds almost like a spiritual quest as much as a culinary education. How do you see that time now, looking back? At the Pueblo, all the young men go into initiation, and there's different levels of it, depending on like what your parents want you to go into or um, have in plan for you and your involvement with the place. Um, I never got that initiation, unfortunately, Like even though I grew up close to the Pueblo and in my grandfather's house. Um, he passed away early. My dad kind of assimilated with his sort of Spanish side more. But the initiation process is somewhat of what I went through in this journey to different cities and different restaurants. It's kind of like leaving the familiar, um, kind of being on your own and having um, to figure it out in a lot of ways. And so even though I didn't get that at the Pueblo, I feel like this was that for me in my life and journey through food. And I'm so grateful for it. We can go down to the river. Watch out for these sinkholes. There was a badger who lived here. So these are the rose fruit. We'll come back and pick these once the, the frost kick in and make them sweeter. They're gonna be like really dark red and you'll smash them in this like fruit layer will be like really jammy and gooey. And then we can probably go this way. Wherever the elk make the path is probably the best. New mushrooms popping up. Supposedly if the stem turns blue, if you pick it, they're psychedelic, but I haven't found those yet. <laughs> These are choke cherries. We use choke cherries a lot, but the birds usually beat us to them. They're good to eat fresh. They're really sweet, but then they get like really tannic and dry your mouth out. So generally we'll like make a syrup or a juice with them and use that. But there's actually more here than I thought there would be. So I'll probably come back and pick some. All the plants here are completely different than you'd find in Washington on the coast or in Chicago or even Bay Area. So I think on a subtle level, I've kind of learned how to like live with the time that is inherent with nature. In a restaurant, you get what's in season because that's what's at the farmer's market, but you don't necessarily know all that goes into that. So I've really learned like how to be reverent and participant in, you know, Mother Earth's cycles. And it teaches me cooking, but it also teaches me just how to be a human.
When the Sever editors are putting together an epic cheese board, a creamy cacio pepe, or a melty chile relleno, we look to one place for our star ingredient, Wisconsin, the state of cheese, where rich international influences meet a unique American terroir. That one-of-a-kind cheesemaking culture has flourished since immigrants from Switzerland, the Netherlands, Italy, and beyond first settled in the region's lush green hills almost 200 years ago. The soil and water, nurtured by glacial sediment, provided the perfect conditions for recreating their favorite cheeses. Today, those centuries-old skills, combined with the freshest milk available, has won Wisconsin more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. From grass-fed alpine-style cheeses to cave-aged raw milk cheddars, Wisconsin cheesemakers blend tradition with innovation to create an impressive artisanal assortment that will wow at your next meal. Look for the proudly Wisconsin cheese badge at your local grocery store and discover your next favorite cheese today. Can you take me back to when the idea for Shed first came about? Because ultimately it's what led you home. So when did you know it was time to start something new? I was working at Saison upwards of four years and I became disenchanted with my time there. So I just knew I needed to leave and I knew that there really wasn't anywhere else that I wanted to work or needed to work and wanted to kind of explore my own vision. I didn't know quite what it looked like. I just kind of was like, I'm going to put the foot in the right direction and see how it goes. And so I put in my notice and I left Cezanne. I started doing ceramic classes with a friend and I was spending time at farms and traveling throughout um, California coastlines and finding ingredients and stuff. So then I launched Kickstarter and I started um, this project, I think with like $4,000 and was doing it out of my apartment in Mill Valley. So people would like walk up the stairs and have dinner in like this little apartment with a tiny kitchen. I wasn't even able to do dishes during service because it was such a small kitchen. I'd like hide them in the bedroom and wash them afterwards. And that went on for a few months and shortly after realized that like this was actually really special and needed to be back home. The partner I was with at the time um, kind of just said, if you want to move back home, I'll move with you. And that was kind of the big catalyst for it. We started packing stuff up, moved back home. And now like five or so years later, it's kind of evolved into this whole ecosystem of practices that are based on this place. The ethos behind shed is um, kind of like when a snake sheds its skin, it doesn't become less of a snake. It actually becomes more of a snake. And so this kind of like idea of me wanting to shed these places that I've been or these experiences that I had and become more myself um, felt really applicable So the ethos for Shed really started to crystallize when you came home. How did you find the land and the farm? So growing up at the Pueblo, I was pretty enamored by feral landscapes and the the possibility within them. And my grandfather, he was a concha and had cattle and he was part of a big farming family. When I was growing up, that was not present. So I never got to witness that except for the sort of artifacts like the orchard or the hay baler that's entangled with wild plums now or those things but he did leave behind some land for the family and so there is land that we have at the Pueblo that could be used for sort of what I'm doing now but um, not being initiated and wanting to invite outsiders into the space like on a sort of regular basis 
just doesn't really work with that place. And so um, it was kind of a hard awakening to realize that I couldn't do it there. So I jumped on this pursuit of like finding the right spot for a couple of years. And everything in Taos was either like too domesticated or too expensive or just not right. And I found the valley that I live in now um, a year or two later and just knew that this was the place. And it's amazing how it all just kind of comes together. You know, I saw like a plywood for sale sign on the fence. So I went to the county and I looked up who owned the property. Um, and I called the guy who happened to be the realtor that I talked to at another property. And he was like, oh yeah, that's my land. You know, I could never have found that online or through an app or something. You know, it really took being like present in this place and kind of putting the intention out there and um, so now, yeah, we have 22 acres, um, 16 acres of pasture that we bail for the cows and the sheep. And then some of it's feral along the river where we harvest a lot of remedios. And then we have barn where we milk the cow. We have the root cellar where we store the wine and hang meats. We have the the 200-year-old adobe that we live in. There's a 100-year-old adobe that we're fixing up to do dinners in. Um, and so these properties have everything that we need to have this regenerative or holistic lifestyle all within like a pretty small area. Your setup sounds so idyllic. And, you know, for many people, you really are living the dream, but it is a lot of work. You have the farm, the ceramic studio, the dinner series. Was there a moment when you were just thinking, I'm in too deep, or at least a challenge that was hard to overcome. My partner, Maida, um, really helps a lot. We live together. She milks the cow when I can't. I milk the cow when she can't. Um, I shear the sheep, and she dyes the wool, and we make blankets um, with another weaver. It's kind of propelled by me, but um, I do rely on her a lot. I spent a whole year building a couple barns. Um, one I built all by myself with my friend Josh. Um, and then the other one my dad helped me with. And um, after I finished the second one, I learned so much and kind of regretted where I put the first one and the wood that I bought for it wasn't big enough. So the roof's kind of sinking in. And I put it in a place where when I parked the car, if the parking brake gives out, it might just slam into the barn, which happened. I sometimes look at that barn and I'm like, oh, I wish I just would have known how to build it better or um, could take it apart and build it somewhere else. But the things that maybe I do kind of regret also propelled me into knowing what I want and how to do it. I think part of that is trying to find my limits and um, so far I haven't really found them yet. The cows kind of thought we built it for them so they were sneaking in here a little bit but I've been trying to keep them out. This will be the sort of like whole dining space. This is gonna be like a um, the entrance where you get a cocktail and probably have like a bookshelf and just kind of like a loungy area so you'll walk in here and um, we might open this door up a little bit and you'll come in here and then this will be where the dining room is in the kitchen. And then just because it was a house and because we don't really have places for people to stay yet or anything. We're gonna have one bedroom. Uh, if someone wants a private sort of like room, they can stay here. I'm just gonna close this so the cows don't come back. 
So yeah, this is the house. You can see the old adobes. They used to just make them with the mud here and the, all the like wheat leftovers after harvesting it. It's pretty cool to see all of that. If you like dig deep enough in it, you can find little wheat berries still. I'm gonna try and plant some and see if any wheat comes up one of these days. In the mission statement for SHED, you mention the fleeting of time as being an important factor, but there's also a slowness to the way you're living and preparing these foods. Can you describe that relationship you have with time? Once the monsoons hit, certain flowers come out, or once the frost hits, certain things are sweeter. And so time is actually my tempo of what to cook and how to cook it. And so there's never really like a pause. It's just like this beautiful transition of time that is there for a minute and you want to hold on to it, but then it's gone and you have to just move on to the next thing. I love the idea of honoring the fleeting portion of time. I think a lot of restaurants may be like, it's ramp season, come and get your ramps. And there's value in that too, but to like know what is available and when it's available and why is like so special to me and if you actually get connected with it, you realize that, you know, the rose fruit is only ripe after a certain amount of frost. Um, and then after that, you have to race the birds to get them. So it is this like very small moment where you can actually capture this like perfect rose fruit. And it seems only important to honor that encapsulation of time. The thing that I love about wild foods is that it kind of gives me a window into like what my ancestors would have eaten. Um, at the Pueblo, there is like a food culture and there is like traditional foods, but they kind of are like post-contact when they were given like flour and sugar and chili and these other sorts of things. So it's nice to kind of see what the terrain provides. In cooking those things, I actually get like a deeper connection with who I am and where I'm from. What are you hoping people will experience when they enter your space and come for dinner? In the spaces that we inhabit, the only intention that I have that guests um, come and witness is just the reverence for like time and place that I feel when I'm out in the woods or with the cattle or um, in the garden. And it's something that can't ever be fully transferred. Um, but it seems like by being witness to that or participant, you can actually feel that same spirit. The spaces are usually full of things that we use, generally like an apple press or the stone matate that we used to grind the corn, old rag rugs on the floor from the 1900s, Rio Grande style. Um, they're kind of ratty and had been used forever, but they tell a story. And the new space that we're fixing up, it uh, was built in the 1920s uh, by a Chavez family. And it's in the middle of the field, which is kind of unusual. Um, so the acequia uh, flows above it. And so when we flood our fields, it kind of floods the house a little bit too. So it feels like it's really immersed in all the things that we do. It'll be a space that is kind of just everything that we need to hold these dinners and nothing more, nothing less. It seems like your work isn't only about creating the foodways of your ancestors. You know, like you said, you never had the chance to learn certain skills from your grandparents and elders. So how do you find your own way of doing things, but also honor certain traditions? I like to look on the past, but also to know that it needs to continue going in some capacity. 
with us raising sheep, we want to do weaving also, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the same as it was done a hundred years ago or for the same purposes. Um, but continuing that practice is really important to me. And there is this like battle of like past and present and future and, um, how much do we emulate? How much do we like separate from? And I think we're figuring that out constantly. And everything that we do kind of starts with the same ethos, like raising things in a minimal intervention sort of way. So we don't help with the calving season. We let the moms do that on their own. We'll never like take the calf, inject it with steroids. And, you know, I probably could have learned that sort of stuff from my grandfather and then taken a long time to realize that I didn't want to do that. So there is this gift in kind of having to figure it out for yourself. It is this beautiful thing of being able to do things from the past in a new way that fits our intentions. I'm curious, could Shed ever exist somewhere else? Or do you think the project will always be rooted in New Mexico and the land you're on now? After kind of finding this land and doing the things here, I realized that this is my place forever. I have no intention of ever leaving. And um, if you go to any of the like old timers houses, they have like a cemetery in their property for all their like parents and grandparents. And I've been joking around that we already have our, our plot planned out and we'll be here for a long time. I'm kind of the, the school of thought that we kind of have to struggle to like know ourselves. And so I do hope that I can be some sort of role model for younger people from the Pueblo or younger people in New Mexico in general, but I don't necessarily want to be a teacher and like tell people how to do these things because I'm still figuring them out. And the only reason that it fits my life so well is because like I've designed it to my life so well and like what I need and how I want to do it. And when you witness someone doing something really special, how you can either like try and be closer to that specialness or separate from it. I do hope that all the work that we do ends up inspiring people to be their best selves and to to struggle and work hard and find these new systems that really work for them. That's our show for today. If you can't make it to New Mexico anytime soon, head to our link section in the episode description for more info on how you can become a member at Shed and receive dispatches from the farm, along with updates on the latest Shed dinner series. I'm your host, producer, and the creator of this podcast, Alex Redgrave, and here are all the incredible people who bring place settings to life. The show is also produced by Ali Alkiza, executive creative producer, Hallie Petro, Head of Production, Pat Sullivan. Associate Producer, Kimu Alolia. Production Assistant, Alex Teal. The theme music and original composition is by Julian Fader and Justin Morris. Music edit, sound design, and mix by Rob Ballingal, with support from Kelly Usman and Owen Shearer. Music supervision by Justin Morris. Our tape sync and field recordist in Taos is Gustavo Martinez. At Sever, our Chief Content Officer is Kate Berry. The podcast visual design is by Britt Ashcraft. Play Settings is recorded and produced with Sonic Union in New York City. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'll see you next week when we head to Nashville.